Hey everyone, happy Mother's Day to those of you who are moms and or have been a mother figure to others. Thanks for joining us as we begin a new series this week, and for the next few months, we're going to call this series Freedom. The reason for the series is twofold. We wanted to give us a break from a book of the Bible like Genesis for a season because it's pretty heavy and dense. And even though we only tackled nine, verse, or nine chapters of that letter or that book, we went through a lot of theology and a lot of topics. The other reason for this series on freedom is that as a church, we emphasize the gospel. Everything we teach from the scriptures is filtered through the redemptive plan of God. And for some, that may mean that we are assumed to be very evangelistic because we share the gospel each week in our sermons, but being about the gospel is a lot more holistic than that. The gospel, the good news of God, personified in the person and finished work of Jesus, provides a new life for every believer in Jesus Christ. And that new life with a new heart and a new record before God is gifted through Jesus, personally sacrificing himself for our sin, rising from the dead for our justification, and ascending to the right hand of the Father where he will return one day to make everything new and right in eternity with him. That is the macro version of the gospel. But the micro version or the day-to-day -day version of the gospel is that we as Christians have freedom that we have never experienced from things like sin, idolatry, fear, and other things that squelch our joy and peace before we're in Christ. But being in Christ means we are free to worship. We have right standing with God of the universe. We have the liberty to live life for Him rather than ourselves, which was impossible without Christ trading his life for ours, forgiving us of our sins, and drawing us to himself in union that is supernatural. The dictionary says that freedom, here's the definition, the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. This definition is one that I think most of us think of when we hear freedom, and there's some truth to it. But the freedom we will talk about is much, much, much more important to our spiritual lives today. Because what many don't realize is that we are born into bondage, no matter what country or parents' worldview that you adopt. We are born into an oppression that most don't notice or admit because they're too busy attempting to pull themselves out of it rather than bow a knee to the one who has the true solution to our problem. Our culture wants to vilify authority, and if anything smells of someone having any pull over someone else, culture will attempt to label it something that it's not. Today and for the next many weeks, we who will be teaching in this series want to paint a picture for each of us of what a big deal it is to be found in Christ and that being set free that is available in Jesus and that that life now can be lived in Jesus rather than the bondage which this world gives to each of us as soon as we enter into it. So turn with me to a passage that we studied as a church many moons ago in John chapter 8. And that's where we're going to begin. John chapter 8, we're going to be in verse 31. Here's what it says. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews who had been following Jesus from town to town and where he would preach in the synagogues and mountainsides, who had experienced the miraculous and experienced an authority and teaching that they had never heard before. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you are, you then are really my disciples. This is a bold statement and one that really isn't possible without God being involved. 
and in relationship with those who are his disciples. But this holding to his teaching is what makes one an actual disciple of his, and through that they will know the truth, and that truth will set them free. So obviously holding to his teaching means something. It has a lot writing on it, and it has a benefit that is pretty drastic. So let's look at this within context. Prior to the statement, Jesus is speaking to this crowd, specifically some of the Jewish leaders who question whose authority Jesus spoke from. And Jesus pointed to his father who had sent him. But not only could the leaders not hear this, they could not understand it because they saw Jesus as someone who couldn't have had more authority than they did because they felt they were justified in their leadership roles because of the work that they had put in. As we began, I spoke about the bondage that we are born into, which is sin. But often that sin doesn't look just like doing the bad stuff. It's also attempting to justify ourselves by doing the good stuff for the wrong reasons. Let me say it this way. We can be enslaved to sin in our obedience because obeying for the wrong reasons doesn't eternally accomplish anything. So what does Jesus mean when he says, hold to my teaching? Let's look at a similar saying that's used by the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received, which you've taken your stand. Here it is. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, and he pointed out that their salvation was one that had action and proof attached to it, similar to what seems to be what Jesus is communicating to those who are really his disciples. Holding fast or firmly denotes a tied to. Paul, as he's speaking to the church in Corinth, uses a nautical term, which meant to fasten your boat to the dock of the bay. Key the song now, but we won't because on YouTube, they'll make us pay money if we use music. And holding to Jesus's teachings was not just about being in agreement that they are true, but actually living as if they're true. Obedience cannot just be intellectual or mental. It must be physical. We can't just agree that Jesus's teachings are true. We must live them out because they are true. And our holding fast, our holding firmly is not something we can just do in our own strength. Trust me, yours and my strength, it gives out. But God, who has gifted us his spirit, has the ability over time to have us look back and see where he held on for us. A realization that many of us in the faith ought to focus on is fruit is not grown quickly. And the fruit of endurance can almost never be seen without a sample size of time that is very long. Don't judge fruit on the day-to-day as much as the net result of much time. Has there been a change that is obvious over a great amount of time? There ought to be, just like the trees that were planted around the church property when the worship center was built, the, these, the first few years that this church existed, there was growth with those trees, but nothing that would make you go, whoa. But now, almost 70 years later, these trees are substantial and have no resemblance to the seed that they originally were. So why go on this field trip about growth and fruit when we're talking about freedom in Christ? Because what Jesus says is that those who hold firmly to his teaching are his disciples. And then, you will know the truth and the truth will set them free. One more time in John chapter 8, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Knowing the truth is not about knowing some secret password or special knowledge that is only available to an elite uh, group of people. Knowing the truth is about knowing the Son and knowing the truth about the Son, and that will set you free. Knowing that life in His name, that our sins can be forgiven because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, knowing Jesus is about inheriting eternal life. And as we taught years ago, as we went through the book of John, when we stand before God, we have no plea that will save us other than Jesus. And I plead Jesus. I'm with Him. And being found in Christ, pleading Jesus, is where true freedom is found. It's where the red pill is actually taken. Let me explain that reference because some of us need it. In The Matrix, the main character, Neo, is offered the choice between a red pill and a blue pill by the rebel leader Morpheus. The red pill represents an uncertain future. It would free him from the enslaving control of the machine-generated dream world and allow him to escape into the real world. But living the truth of reality is harsher and more difficult. On the other hand, the blue pill represents a beautiful prison. It would lead him back to ignorance, living in confined comfort without want or fear within the simulated reality of the matrix. As described by Morpheus, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, well, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Neo chooses the red pill and joins the rebellion. Spoiler. Now, you've had 23 years to see this movie. It's a pretty great one. I'd recommend going back and seeing it. But now, as a church, back in reality, in this reality, we as a church attempt to point everyone to the red pill every single week because we believe in the gospel of truth personified in Jesus Christ that rebirth can take place and freedom can be found in the name above every name, which is Jesus. We receive this new birth that, Christ, that is Christ-centered rather than self-centered, and this is where freedom begins. But freedom doesn't leave us there. Because we as adopted children of God now get to live lives no longer trapped in the matrix, which represents this life of sin that enslaves and distracts from the truth of God. But we now have a life lived in freedom to live and breathe and have our being to be purposed for the glory of God's beautiful name. And what does that give us? Well, it gives us everything. Look at Paul's explanation to the church in Ephesus. After explaining how every person before Christ acts and lives and the change that can take place when you're made new in Christ. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former self of former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Finding freedom in Christ means that Jesus, the truth, has given us the ability to put off our old self. Putting off our old self has more to do with your perspective than tr trying really hard not to sin. Putting off your old self means that you truly believe that you are a new creation. You don't have to live as if sin reigns and rules you, but you can put on your new self that is found in Christ Jesus. Our old selves are a shell of who God has made us to be, but if you're anything like me, you still remember and unfortunately function in your old self, or as some theologians call it, the old man, which we drag along with us and revert back to in our works of the flesh. 
a good example for me where I rarely catch it right at the time, but look back in sober judgment is how quick I want to defend myself and fight back when I feel attacked or wronged. In the moment, it feels right. It feels like the way to find vindication. Yet it's not what our Lord did as he was sent to the cross unjustly, nor is it a work of the Spirit. Paul, in the letter to the church in Galatia, says that the works of the flesh are obvious. Here's how he puts it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These works of the flesh, these actions that happen in our old self, Paul says they're obvious. Maybe not to us while we're doing them, but we can and ought to be able to see that there is no eternal value in any of these. But I also want to point out something we tend to misinterpret. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. I think our religious minds, our our almost religious perspective, wants to interpret this as, if you ever do any of these things ever, you are disqualified from heaven. Let me first say that not one of us has ever qualified ourselves for heaven and or Jesus, but that Jesus has gifted us his qualifications and grace through his finished work. But to live like this does not mean if you've ever done this before, we're excluded. This is more about practicing these things, which can be subjective. But if you, want, if you have to ask how many times doing these things excludes you from Jesus, you don't get Jesus anyway. But these are the acts of the flesh. These are what we function in without the Holy Spirit. This is what we do without putting off our old self and putting on our new self that God has graciously equipped us with in Him. So what is putting on the new self, as Paul points out in Ephesians 4? Well, it means that we're made new. And believing that, while acting like that, that we are a new creation. And all you do is... but. Let me put it this way. If all you do is just act like you're a new creation without being made new or even believing you are, you'll just be a poser who looks holy but is rotten inside. This is what Jesus calls out in Matthew chapter 23 when the Pharisees and teachers of the law were attempting to discount Jesus and his authority. Here's what he said, verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Let's be clear. Each of us is hypocritical. Each of us judges others for things that we're not even good at. But to claim a relationship with God and yet live as if we did prior to Christ is what Jesus calls out here. We have no God without God's only Son being Lord over our lives. And when we live and practice works of the flesh continually, we're proving that the new self is not an option for us because we are so dominated by something that dominates those who do not have the Spirit of God inside of them rather than those who have access to put on the new self. Paul gives contrast to those who have been made righteous by God and for God later on in Galatians 5. Here's what he says in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
This is what one who is in step with the Spirit or has put on the new self, has been made a new creation, grows in. And man, do we misinterpret this as well. I've heard people use this as a weapon to attempt to justify themselves and condemn someone else. You know, I'm not seeing any fruit in your life. Yes, we ought to be progressing in the fruit of the Spirit over time, but the reality is that time is not what we tend to think it is. We say we pay attention over a long period of time, but we condemn any time someone does anything wrong. All of us misstep. All of us sin. All fall short of the glory of God, but in Christ there is allowance to fail and to learn from our sin to see sin be redeemed in our lives. And I'm so glad that you and I aren't the judge because in our finite minds and impatient judgment, we will miss the fact that God does things over decades rather than at the end of a TV episode. But freedom in Christ means we can fail. But we fell forward by learning from that mistake and by having a heart of humility that owns our failures. And not only wants to do better, but actually does better when we realize that we are equipped with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And we have put on a new self. We are made new in our attitudes of our minds. And we embrace that we have been created to be like Jesus in righteousness and true holiness, which doesn't come from hiding our sin, but it comes from learning from it. A while back, a leader in the church confessed to me a sin that they had done and they had been acting in. And they were broken over this. And I know it was hard for them to confess this sin to me. I not only appreciated their humble heart, but the fact that I knew that how leaders handle people's sin in the church often dictates how those people view how God sees their sin. Now, when you're in leadership, there is a higher expectation placed on them, placed on us. But perfection is not expected of anyone. Otherwise, Jesus' sacrifice would be unnecessary. But none of us can save ourselves. And God is so gracious. He is so loving that even when we sin knowingly or out of anger, God does forgive. And relationship is extended as we repent and turn from our sin. So I'm not saying that I'm glad that this person did this sin, but I'm saying that when we sin, we have another opportunity to proclaim the gospel as our repentance and apology reflect the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Because in the flesh, we double down. The world justifies sin. Our old man wants to cover it up and not let anyone know about it. But the gospel of grace gives us freedom to own what we do and change direction. If man forgives us or not, in Christ, we know we can be fully forgiven. When God was stirring in my wife Erin and I to be part of a church that was different, we knew that the biggest piece was the emphasis of the gospel the good news of Jesus. We knew churches all over the Bay Area that preached the good news of Jesus, but for some reason, as I traveled and spoke around the Bay Area especially, I heard that my reputation was known as the gospel guy. I heard that multiple times, and in some ways I took offense to that because I figured any pastor who opened the scriptures ought to be known as a gospel guy. But what I started to see was that the emphasis or the filter of the unashamed point of making the gospel everything in everything wasn't always there. Now, I don't say this as condemnation of other churches. There are great churches in this area that preach the gospel. But there was this unsettledness in Aaron and I about how the gospel seemed in some cases to be tacked on rather than the main point. 
And I don't know if I'm just a little less intelligent than everyone else, but I wanted to see what it was going to be like to be part of a church that my kids and my family and my friends could have a place that no matter what, no matter what ministry or gathering they were a part of, the central focus was going to be the redemptive plan of God. And when the redemptive plan of God, a.k.a. the finished work of Christ, a.k.a. the gospel of grace, a.k.a. God's trading his life for ours was central, we no longer look at someone as special if they act holier than others or like they are the only ones who can keep their salvation because they hide their sin better than other people do. I wanted to be a church and a community that loved people well in their sin because the gospel makes it so none of us qualify for redemption, but all of us are offered this redemption every single day. By the gift of faith given to us by God, we then can trust and follow Jesus who did what we were unable to do for ourselves, which is earn our salvation for us. Paul continues this idea in the middle of the book of Romans by our sin no longer reigning in us. Here's what he says in Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. Because we have been made free from sin, that does not mean we ought to continue to sin so that grace may abound. Paul answers his own question. He says, no. It means that we can live in freedom from sin, living the obedient lives that we were unable to live out before God gave us his spirit. We as Christians, when we commit to follow Jesus, do what he did. And he tells us to do, we start to do what he tells us to do, which is to be baptized for one thing, a spiritual symbol of dying with Christ dying to our sinful nature, and being raised now in Christ. The water, the action of baptism, the willingness to be baptized, none of that is what saves us. But a symbol of the salvation already gifted to us in Christ Jesus, which represents us being also crucified and resurrected alongside Jesus who did it for us. So Paul points out because of this, we too may now live a new life, centered on and found in Jesus. But then he goes on, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So our being represented in Christ through his death And physically symbolizing this in our baptism means we have been set free from sin, being our major influencer. Because Jesus is now our representation before the Father, and His Spirit indwells us, so we now have the ability to live this new life. This is symbolized and realized in the resurrection of Jesus. It's why we don't stop talking about what a big deal the resurrection is. It's why Easter comes every week when we open the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything for the believer in Christ. So I want to conclude today with two poems. Now, it's Mother's Day, and when I think back to my mother and how much I loved her and how much she loved me, I think about the reality that my mom really loved poetry. And it was something that I really have never 
taken up myself unless you, you count rap lyrics. I'm, I'm big on those. But whenever I read or hear a poem, I think of my mom who loved me so well until the day she died when I was only eight years old. Here's the first one. In Christ, we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, resources that can never be exhausted. Here's the second one. Christ for our sickness, Christ for health, Christ for poverty, Christ for wealth. Christ for joy, Christ for sorrow, Christ today, Christ tomorrow. Christ my life, Christ my light, Christ for morning, noon, and night. Christ when all around gives way, Christ my everlasting stay, Christ my rest, Christ my food, Christ above my highest good. Christ my well-beloved friend, Christ my pleasure without end. Christ my Savior, Christ my Lord, Christ my portion, Christ my God. Christ my shepherd, I his sheep, Christ himself, my soul to keep. Christ my leader, Christ my peace, Christ hath wrong my soul's release. Christ my righteousness divine, Christ for me, for he is mine. Christ my wisdom, Christ my meat, Christ restores my wandering feet. Christ my advocate and priest, Christ who'd never forget the least. Christ my teacher, Christ my guide, Christ my rock, in Christ I hide. Christ the ever-living bread, Christ his precious blood hath shed. Christ hath brought me nigh to God, Christ the everlasting word. Christ my master, Christ my head, Christ who for my sins hath bled. Christ my glory, Christ my crown, Christ the plant of great renown. Christ my comforter on high, Christ my hope draws ever nigh. You and I have received more of a gift in Christ than any government, family member, or spouse could ever give us. We have in our being, and we have our being, we have our breath, because God in his sovereignty willed that we would have those things. And he gave us the faith to trust his son for eternal life. We have freedom in Christ. Many years ago, right before the Civil War started. There's a story that's told. Some people think that it's true. Abraham Lincoln was walking past an auction for a, a young African-American woman who was enslaved. And as he was walking by, he saw her and he saw different people bidding on her and they would bid a number and then someone else would bid a number and it was going up and up. Abraham Lincoln, filled with compassion, walked up to this auction and as he walked up, he started to bid on her. And every time someone bid something, he bid just a little bit more. Eventually, he won the rights to this woman, unfortunately, who was enslaved. He walks up to the, the young woman and he says, I just want to let you know that you're now free. And she didn't understand this. She had never experienced freedom before. And she started to cry and she said, well, what will I do? And he said, anything that you'd like to do. And she said, but where will I go? And he says, anywhere that you'd like to go. 
And she thought about it for a second. She looked at him and she said, well, if it's all the same to you, I think I would like to stay with you. The reality is that when we come to Christ, when we are made a new creation in Christ, we are free. We are free from the bondage of sin, but there is a want to be with our God. There is a want to walk with him and be made new by him daily. And when we fail, he picks us up. When we do things wrong, we can repent of that and change direction. And he gives us grace upon grace. Church, I hope that this Mother's Day is an encouraging one for you. If you have a mother that's wonderful that's in your life, you have a mother who has been gone for some time, or maybe you're even estranged from your mom. I want you to know that you have a God who loves you like no parent ever could. He's perfect in his love. And he did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. He bought our freedom. If you came prepared to give, we'd encourage you to do that. You can do that online. You can, uh, at covalley.com, gives you the opportunity to forward slash giving, I believe. Or you can send a check to the church. But we encourage you to do this only if this is the place where you feel committed. Because we trust that God's going to provide for his church through the people of his church as we grow into the likeness of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you that on this Mother's Day, we can celebrate Jesus. God, may we be a people that celebrate Jesus every day. May we give praise to our God and love back the God who, while we were still sinners, Christ died. May we love you back by grace-driven obedience. May we love you back by exalting your name. May we love you back by loving the least of the people around us. Thank you, Father, that because of your work on the cross, given to us in Jesus, Thank you for the reality that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that we have been made new by trusting and believing that that was enough. God, would you use whatever offering is given to make disciples of all nations? Would more men, women, and children fall in love with this Jesus whom we proclaim? And may you get all the praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.